listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Hello and welcome to episode three of Footprints on Our Hearts. I'm recording this introduction a day early, but this episode will be going out on Valentine's Day. Yep, Valentine's Day. So some people love it, some people hate it. And like every holiday for many people, it's a painful reminder of loss rather than something to celebrate. I have to admit that personally, I've never really been one to make a fuss over Valentine's Day. And if it wasn't for the fact that this podcast was going out, it probably would have snuck up and whizzed past before I noticed it. And as far as I know, my husband and I don't have any specific plans for Valentine's Day, but I imagine we will spend the evening curled up on the sofa. We might light Sky's candle and possibly persuade Darcy, our giant furball of a cat, Uh, to come and have a cuddle on our laps. But I would be interested to know your thoughts on Valentine's Day. Is it something you make an effort to celebrate? Does it bring up happy memories? Or does it perhaps make you a little bit sad? And when I was kind of thinking about Valentine's Day and what I wanted to say in the introduction to this podcast, I thought that actually perhaps... Valentine's Day is not so much or could be seen not so much as a celebration of love for one particular person but as a celebration of love more generally. So because I love books and love quotes (laughs) I had a dig around in one of my favourite books which is Charlie Maxey's The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse for a quote about love. Sometimes I feel lost said the boy Me too, said the mole, but we love you and love brings you home. So I feel like that sums up my thoughts this Valentine's Day and I hope that if it is a tough day for you, you can take some time to relax, treat yourself with kindness and tomorrow is another day. So in my interview this week, I'm talking with Philippa Davis, the author of Dancing in the Wings, which is a play based on Philippa's experience of infertility and baby loss. Philippa's story is one of the most heartbreaking I've come across. But the reason I reached out to Philippa to ask if she'd be willing to come on the podcast is because it's a story that I feel quite strongly needs to be told. And I'm so grateful to Philippa for being brave enough to talk so eloquently about what she's been through. I think all of those, all of us who've lost a child long for the day that we'll get to bring home our rainbow baby. But in reality, not everyone does get to have their rainbow baby. And I'm sure there are many people out there who've been through the cycle of perhaps infertility, perhaps pregnancy, loss, multiple losses, and have reached a point where, for whatever reason, they've had to give up their dream of bringing a living child home. So if you are one of these people, then this this episode is for you, and I hope you can relate to Philippa's story in some way. And Philippa is very open and honest about her tragedies, the impact they've had on her mental health and her day-to-day life. Um, So yeah, I think not just, you know, if you're still waiting for your rainbow baby, if you struggled from PTSD, she talks about that a lot, struggling to conceive, particularly the vagaries of the NHS, uh, support for fertility treatment. Um, And yeah, I think think it was a huge amount of really interesting stuff that Philippa has to say. In terms of her play, it's being performed in theatres across North Wales and Cheshire in the next month. The first performance will be at the Theatre Cluid on the 27th of February. It's then going to Wrexham and Carnarfon before the final weekend at the Forum Theatre in Chester, with the final performance um, quite intentionally being the night before Mother's Day. And I'll put all the dates and links to buy tickets in the show notes. And one thing that... 
Philippa sort of says in the interview is that she's particularly keen that health professionals who are involved in supporting bereaved parents come along and I guess use it as an opportunity to to really understand what some of what parents go through when they lose a child. So if you are able to spread the word about the play, um, then I would really appreciate it. Finally, I just wanted to mention, well, I'll mention it. (laughs) I know that the stories on this podcast may be quite hard to listen to sometimes. And I try my best to give a warning kind of in the show notes where there may be things that may be a particular trigger for you, depending on your own experience of loss and where you might be in your grief journey. Um, and that's why you can skip ahead to certain segments of the show um, if you if you want to hear parts of it, but not the other part. But I think just as a general point, please do be kind to yourself. Please reach out for support if you need it. And if these conversations do kind of trigger anything with you. If you're in the UK, SANS have a free helpline um, you can call if you need to talk to someone. And you can use that whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a friend, um, or anyone really who's been affected by baby loss or supports people who've lost a child. And the number for that is 0808-164-3332. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Philippa, the author of Dancing in the Wings, a very special play that's based on Philippa's experience of infertility and baby loss. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Philippa. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So we've got a lot that I'd like to talk about today um, because you have some quite unique experiences, I think, compared to many other guests. But before we get on to talking about your daughter, Sam, and her writing and all that kind of stuff, let's go right back to the beginning. So when did you first realise that perhaps your journey to motherhood wasn't going to be as smooth as you would hope? It's probably going back quite a long time ago. Um, going back, I mean, I'm I'm 48 now, and so going back um, 18 years ago, um, when I just hit 30, um, I had a problem with um, I was I was rushed into hospital with what I thought was food poisoning, and turned out to be um, a massive cyst on my left ovary that had ruptured and ruptured the ovary as well. And turned out to be um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, but hadn't been detected despite a number of issues through my teenage years and 20s. Um, nobody had picked up on it. So it wasn't until this emergency operation. And at that point, they told me I could lose one or both ovaries. Um And yeah, it was really terrifying, but they decided to try and reconstruct the ovary, um, which didn't work terribly well. Um, But we, I I kind of persisted. And then it took me, I suppose it it took me a while to find, um, I suppose, relationship that that was suitable. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit later in my life. Um, So it was, it was 38, I was, I was 36 by the time I'd met Sam's dad. And by this time, the reconstructed ovary was beginning to tell me that it was having problems. Um, and I was in and out of hospital for six months just after we met uh, before they had to remove it. Um, and also discovered cysts on my right ovary as well. Um, but at that stage, I guess they said to me, well, we need you to try naturally for a few years um, before two years, 18 months to two years before we can give you any assistance so it was difficult okay so so you're left at 36 which is it isn't old or late no I'm 36 but but you definitely start feeling like there is a clock there absolutely uh, at that point definitely and you've got so you've got one ovary removed and you've got one left which has problems so did I mean did anyone talk to you about I don't know a harvesting or anything um, along those lines? What, what they said is, at that point, they said, 
Well, we've done tests and it does work sometimes. So <laughs> there is a chance um, that you can conceive naturally and we would prefer it if you tried naturally for a while before we look at anything else. <clears throat> so that's what we did and 18 months later still nothing and so I'd gone back to the doctors and they said look we're really sorry but at this stage you're now too old for assistance through the you NHS. Have to be joking. No no no. Oh my um, goodness. So at that stage it was well what do I do now? Um, I still, I mean, they, they did lots of tests and said, yes, you still have cysts on your right ovary. Yes, you're ovulating sometimes. But um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't working. So we then, it was only then two years later. No, it was later than that. Three, three and a half years later before we could even contemplate IVF because we didn't have the funds. We didn't have the money to do it mm. and it was only um, after sorry no no no. I was going to say and you obviously don't have to share this information if you don't want to because it's very private but I haven't been through fertility treatment I do know people who have and I am aware that it is a very expensive thing to go through are you able to give us maybe I don't know some idea of what the sort of cost is for people who maybe don't realize what the impact the financial impact of that is it, it, it was huge the the first round of IVF um, it, in the end with all the added bits they decided we needed um, came to nearly four thousand pounds for the first round um, and that was UK um, treatment um, now, we were delighted at the fact that worked. It was amazing, you know, that the fact that I became pregnant first time was, was really, really exciting and it, it was fantastic. So we were over the moon with that <laughs> at that stage. And then what happened next? Well, we, we went along for, we had an early scan um, and that was all good and all fine. And then we went along for the 12-week scan and they said, yep, baby's growing really well. Everything's good. However, there is a slightly increased um, nuchal translucency NT measurement at the back of the baby's neck. Now, this could be nothing. It could be something. We don't know at this stage. You know, babies with a hole in their heart can have this and that's not a problem. And so that's fine. Um, but we'd like you to come back. Um, we'd like you to have some blood tests and then we'd like you to come back. Um so we did that. We we went down the blood test route and there were some of it was showing up absolutely normal and other bits of it wasn't quite normal. And then when we came back a couple of weeks later and the consultant scanned um scanned the baby, then he said, Well actually the, the anti measurements reduced and you know, we suspect it could be something and nothing, really. So just relax, carry on, it'll be, you know, Let's see what happens. There's nothing else to worry about at the moment. So by this point, you're already you you yep you you do everything you can to stay relaxed and and happy and cheerful. But there's always that fear because we'd actually lost a baby a month before we were due to go for IVF. Um, okay. Very very early pregnancy at that stage. So I already knew there was a possibility of these things happening. But I thought, no, it's fine. You know, that they're telling us it's okay. Um, let's carry on. So that's what we did. And, and I did, I, I actually gave it work at that point. And the reason I gave it work was because I thought, I've got one crack at this. I've got one chance mm -hmm. at it. And I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy the pregnancy and I'm going to make the most of it. And, you know, if there are any stresses, then I, I don't want to focus on work. So that's what I did and, and lived off some savings that I had. Um, and then we went for the 20-week scan. And that was when things were horribly wrong. Um, that was when we discovered that um, baby was a girl. She was Sam and she had brain cysts and she had two and a half chambers instead of four to her heart. And she had twisted limb on on her, her arm and um yeah the uh, 
it it was the yeah the worst experience probably of my life and it was hard because um the consultant at that stage said to us in the meeting afterwards you know i i actually don't believe she's compatible with life but we need to do some tests um and the blood test showed that she had edwards syndrome um and was all were all the factors which they found on the scan was that because of the Edwards syndrome? Yeah. Could you maybe yeah. explain about what Edwards is? Yeah, so so Edwards is is um, a trisomy eighteen, and it's um, basically as a, speaking as a biology, it, it as a biologist with most of your genes, you have a duplicate copy of of each of your your chromosomes that make up your genes. Um, but with this, it had a triplicate. So a number of the chromosomes were, were triplicate rather than duplicate. Um, a little bit like Down syndrome is the same. So, so that has a triplicate and a number of different chromosomes. The unfortunate factor with Edwards syndrome is that the, the chromosomes that are affected are absolutely necessary for life. And, and so, you know, you, you have a baby who usually usually doesn't make that stage of pregnancy mm-hmm. um or the third trimester certainly generally doesn't make birth and if they do they will only live um hours possibly days if you have full blown edwards syndrome there is there is a different type um where they children can live for slightly longer but sam had full blown edwards syndrome mm-hmm. So and um, yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine you must have been in so much shock and and grief and just shock, sort of, I guess, almost unable to to take this in. What options were you given, or what what did they tell you at that stage? How did they treat you? They, um, I mean, they they have to be very professional. Um, so they have to, I suppose, deal with it in a way that is black and white. Um, which is hard when it's your child. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they gave us the option to terminate. Um, and that was something that for me personally, and everybody's very different, and it it has to be the most difficult decision that anyone ever has to make in their entire life, ever. And I couldn't make that decision. I couldn't, for me personally, I decided that I would wait until she was ready and... I, it, the weird thing was within the, within the hours after and a couple of days until we got the blood test results, I was so angry and so upset. But once they told me, I almost decided, no, you're a mum and you have that responsibility to your baby and you can't just sit here for however long she's got feeling sorry for yourself. You have to look after her. That's what you're her mum. So... so we went through um, what time she had left. Um, she got to 34 weeks in the end. Um, but between 20 weeks and 34 weeks, she went to Michelin star restaurants. She went swimming. She stayed in hotels. Um, she went fishing. She um, she had Christmas. She had Christmas presents and trees and everything that you would do for a child. Because I thought if I'm relaxed, then no matter what her health is, she's going to be more relaxed, um, even at that stage. So that's what I did. That's what we did. Um, yeah. That's that's an amazing approach to take because it would be so easy just to, to kind of give up and spend every day crying and, you know, because that grief is still going to be there, isn't it? And I, you know, there's the, yeah. there's the grief because of the knowledge that she won't survive and... Yeah. The, the grief that you're having to carry her and go through this and, and kind of, I guess, it's extending that yeah. that process. Um, I don't know if that helped you come helped you come to terms with it or prepare for what was going to happen a bit more. I, I think, I don't think I prepared myself for it at all. I, th- <clears throat> I think I, I was very optimistic. Um, I really hoped that maybe possibly she'd be a baby that I would meet you know I I suppose that was my hope and I'd come across another family in Cheshire who'd just gone through the same thing but their baby had gone through birth and at this stage was days old um 
And I suppose that gave me a little bit of hope that maybe, just maybe, I I would get to meet her. Um, and I thought, no, I can't. I can't. I have to do this. And I I really did. I was I was really strong with myself. I suppose I I gave myself the rules that whilst you are with her and she is with you, you are a mum and you are going to do everything possible to keep her happy. And that's what I did. And that that was the only way I could approach it um, for me as a mum and for her as my daughter. So that was, yeah, that was how, that's but in, I didn't. Yeah, incredibly, yeah, incredibly brave of you. <laughs> I, I guess it was just my way of coping, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you tell us, so you got through Christmas, can you tell yeah. us then what, what happened around that 30-week point? Yeah. Um, so it was the 16th of January. And um, I was going for, because I was having um, kind of midwife appointments every 10 days so that we could we could check for heartbeat. And I mean, she carried on growing. This was the thing. She was the liveliest baby in the world. She just constantly danced and, um, from from morning till night. And she constantly grew which was miraculous really and so she'd keep I, you awake at night oh yeah yeah she'd keep me awake she'd wake me up in the morning she's and it was the best feeling in the world it was it was amazing but every time we saw the midwife she said, well, she's keeping growing she's still growing and she's growing to the to her gestational age which was amazing for a baby with with her disability and um so the 16th of january i excitedly went along for my midwife appointment and it was yeah I I never I never expected it but I think the worst thing was I I went into the doctors and I sat in the waiting room and I was approached by two ladies who were selling it it was about learning because I lived in Wales it was about encouraging young children to learn Welsh and so they wanted to sign parents up at a very early stage to sign them up to um learn welsh and they came and sat next to me and they said right you know would you like to do this how do you say to somebody that your baby's gonna die um and i i said look i I don't think it's something that i want to do right now and they said well come on come on you know we, we, we can do this it's fine in the end i had to say it because they wouldn't listen to what I was saying so I actually had to say I'm I'm going to lose my baby but I think what they actually thought was something along the lines of social services will take my baby off that was how it was which was just horrific and I I couldn't say anymore there were other pregnant mums in in the waiting room so I then went in for my scan and I was always desperate to to hear her and Anyway, the the midwife couldn't find a heartbeat and she said, it's okay, it's okay, some babies are just lazy, let's wake her up, I'll give you a hot sweet cup of tea, it's an old fashioned way of waking them up. So we did that and I didn't, I really didn't think there was anything wrong and I think that was probably me blocking it out Um, and so she came back and yeah, couldn't, couldn't find, couldn't find a heartbeat. So I then had to drive myself to hospital because I couldn't get hold of my partner at the time. So I had to drive myself to hospital and to be told that, yeah, she, her heart had stopped. Um, and yeah, I mean, all, all I could say was I'm not ready. I'm not ready for her to go. I, I can't, you know, and I went at the end of it, I just went home they said well we need to book you in to deliver mm-hmm. her and I said no I can't can't right now can't so I just yeah. drove myself can't, can't think of that can't. <laughs> no no she's still with me right now mm-hmm. so I drove home and I didn't want to tell anybody because I thought as soon as I tell people I'm gonna have to accept that she's gone and I couldn't do that <laughs> Had you told your partner at this point had he come I'd to the still hospital been with tra- you, no or? because I couldn't get hold of him so it oh, wasn't no. and it wasn't until I got home that I was able to get hold of him. Um and obviously he was he's absolutely devastated. But yeah, I I didn't want to tell my family or anybody else because then I'd have to I'd have to accept it and I couldn't I wasn't ready to do that. Um 
but then they they found out anyway and so I, I had to go through the process and so it was it was a week it was a week before I went into hospital and delivered her and through that week I was terrified I I begged the doctor to to do a cesarean because I couldn't cope I'd wanted to meet her alive I didn't know who I was going to meet it like this so um anyway they said well we can't do that for health reasons we can't give you a cesarean we can't knock you out we can't so you're going to have to go through it we'll have to induce you you will have to deliver just like normal birth and uh you have to go through it and that was that was terrifying that was um yeah one of the scariest things ever um but we went through it it took it took 12 hours of inducing um mm-hmm. and i didn't there was part of me didn't want to go through it because i didn't want to lose the pregnancy i didn't want to lose the bump i didn't want to lose her i didn't want to i didn't want to not be a pregnant mum anymore and then then i was scared of seeing her because i didn't know who i was going to see or what i was going to see and then the minute i I gave birth to her because that's the only way I can look at it. The minute I gave birth to her, she wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't letting her go. She, they weren't going to take her away. And I spent the best 16 hours of my life, the proudest moment of my life and the best 16 hours of my life. Um, yeah. And did those feelings of, I guess, fear around meeting her and perhaps maybe what she looked like, what she'd be like. Did those stick with you? Did those go after the birth? How did you the, the find instant, that experience? The instant, the second I gave birth to her, they were not going to take her away. Um, they were gone. The fear was gone because that was my little girl, that was my baby, and it didn't matter that she wasn't breathing. It didn't matter that she wasn't, her heart wasn't beating. Um, that was my little girl, just like anybody else um, giving birth to a, a baby who is breathing with a heartbeat. Um, yeah, proudest. I couldn't have been prouder of her or, or prouder of myself at that point. And did you get the chance, did the hospital kind of support you in terms of making memories or doing anything like that with her? No, no. I did it mm. myself. I'd already done it because during between 20 weeks and 34 weeks, I'd I already, I'd, I'd never knitted in my life, but I, I wasn't, you know, I was, I was better at digging holes in gardens and changing engines than I was at knitting. But um, I knitted her a, a blanket and I just, I created the memories myself. I, I, I'd already collected everything for her by the time <laughs> she, she arrived. And so I, I'd done it myself. They, they took family photos. They took photos of us, and yeah, they they are the most precious photos um, and pictures that I have, and they are everywhere with me. They're on my phone. They are at home. They are something that a lot of people are frightened of, and I have to be very careful. But yeah, they go everywhere with me. Um, so that's yeah, that's basically what the hospital did, and we we were able to have a registration form for her and. I kept, I mean, I, I have her measuring tape that I measured her with. She, you know, she weighed, she weighed a pound and she measured a foot in length and she had big feet and perfect little fingers, you know, and I have all those things um, in the bag next to my bed um, along with her ashes because I couldn't let them go either. Um yeah. And it's such an impossible decision to make, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. you know, this decision you've got to make is do you bury your child? Do you make them like, what What yeah. do you do with this baby who you were expecting? Oops. I was, I was know, really dreaming, hoping yeah. that you would be bringing home, home forever. It, it was hard because in the hospital, they said to me, well, you have a choice. You can either sort your own funeral out or we have, um, oh, and it made me so angry. We We have kind of a multiple cremation where you can just kind of you know almost yeah I I yeah I can't go into that really but um I couldn't cope with that so 
I was I was incredibly lucky. I, I no, that, that we will sort this out. Um, and I found an amazing undertaker. He was a very very old traditional guy, um, and he was amazing. And he refused to charge us at all. Um, oh, that is that's which, so yeah. nice. And and really Welsh speaking, very traditional chapel. You're not not what you would expect in terms of having that level of empathy. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, he also he would he he took her when we left hospital, and we were allowed to go and see her before the funeral. So whenever we wanted, I could go down there. Um, yeah, so I I was lucky with that. Um, well, as lucky as I I I have to count the positive things you know because you've got to so Mm. yeah so that was that was my beautiful baby sam thank you so much for sharing her story that's okay so this was in 2012 i think yeah yeah Mm -hmm. what how did you feel after sam about trying again for another baby i desperately wanted to be a mum that that um I've always wanted to be a mum and never thought I wouldn't be, ever. Mm-hmm. Even though my career was my focus and I was quite academic and everything else, I was never not going to be a mum. So the issue then came down to how do we afford more IVF? And I thought, well, let's go back to the doctor because, come on, you know, I've just been through this. We paid for the first round. So it it was probably six months, maybe. And nine months after Sam went back to the doctor and I said, they knew obviously because they'd supported me through this. And I said, well, we can't afford, you know, I've spent all my savings taking time off with Sam and I paid for the IVF. And, you know, is there any chance we can get support? And they said, well, the, the age limit has now gone up for for supporting you with IVF. And I said, well, that's amazing. That's brilliant. But only if you've never had IVF before. So I can't believe how you've just been caught in between yeah. these different things. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's the worst. It's like the perfect storm of infertility support disaster. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. not even a sentence, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah, that's, yeah. And that's how it that's how it felt. It just, you know, it, it was like the worst tragic comedy you could ever imagine. And they couldn't find any way of making no, an no. exception for you. No, no. So what what happened was we had to wait another two years. Um and in the end I I had to borrow the money from my mum <laughs> from my mum's credit card. Um and yeah we we went again and by this time IVF costs had gone up again. Mm-hmm. So this time um yeah, it was it was over. It was nearly five thousand, I think, because they decided they wanted to add more treatment into it, um, just in case, um, and it failed. So they only managed to retrieve one egg, and the um, yeah, it, it failed. So um, at that point, that that was almost as bad as losing a child. Um, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to cope anymore. Um, my partner got me a young dog, um, Ernie, who's, who's with me now. Um, I, the problem is that you, you're a mum. I'd already had a baby and I was a mum anyway. I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing, um, to love. Um, so... The, the strange thing was that three months later, I fell pregnant naturally. Wow. Yeah, which, which was incredibly Which unexpected. must have been a shock. It, it was a shock and the, and the best thing ever, mm-hmm. the best thing. But during those three months, I trying to come to terms with, with what had happened, Sam and another IVF. And I'd been doing a lot of writing and I'd been writing books for Sam and I'd been writing children's fiction and it was my way of being a mum I guess (coughs) excuse me and so when I became pregnant with baby three um that was the best thing in the world 
And all of a sudden, I felt amazing, absolutely amazing. All the fear that I'd had because I developed quite a phobia of babies and pregnant women, and my yeah, my mental health hadn't been um, good. I'd developed PTSD. Um, depression, anxiety. So my writing had been my way of kind of coping with that and motherhood. Um, So this baby was a miracle baby. This baby was our miracle rainbow baby. And um, Sam's book, A Cookie for Christmas, which is is actually on Amazon, but I, I decided to put it on Amazon when I became pregnant with baby three because I thought I don't want Sam to feel left out. <laughs> so um that was my way of saying it's okay you're still there um and I had had an early scan with baby three and that was fine heart heartbeat was all there um I was so happy with life and so I, I decided made a decision put Sam's book on Amazon and I thought that's that's great there you go we're fine we've had the early scan nothing can go wrong this time Sam you're not forgotten we've got your book on there as well then two days later I lost that baby and it, it, it's that that was um yeah that that experience I can't go into in depth because I can't cope with it um other than to say, when they found out that I was losing this baby too, they said, right, you don't have to go through the same. This baby was 10 weeks. You don't have to go through the same. Um, we'll get you into hospital and we will put you onto general anaesthetic and you don't have to go through it. There were, I, there were, there were problems with the processes within the hospital that meant that that didn't happen. And I ended up bleeding out across the ward. So, oh my goodness, that was my PTSD at that point. Was uh, yeah, was pretty uncontrollable. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I can't really talk about that one anymore. Yeah. But um, yeah, that that was horrific. Um, and it, I'd up to this point, I'd also been begging for support from kind of counsellors and. Were you offered much? Well, we were, we were offered some support through the hospital when Sam when first lost Sam. But the style, it was very early days, to be fair. Um, the style of counselling was very much, that's my phone. The style, style of counselling was, was very much, um, you talk, we'll listen. At, at that early stage, you don't, you don't feel like talking. What, what do you stay, you know? So we decided that wasn't for us. So I then went, um, I, I was offered lots and lots of antidepressants, turned them down. And the reason I turned them down is because I have quite a low to- drug tolerance. So for me personally, I, I didn't want to end up in a situation where I was turned into a zombie. And that's how it felt to me at that point. Antidepressants absolutely have their place for for certain mm-hmm. people for me it wasn't there my thoughts were always well you know if I become addicted to antidepressants th- that's just going to add to my problems and then when I finally get off them Sam's not there anyway mm-hmm. you know that, that it's not going to change anything and I feel like also it's and I think maybe it is better now and I don't know what it was like then but the grief and depression are different things mm-hmm. and yeah. so much of what you must be going through was grief and obviously that compounded the other issues yeah. um but you know you've you've lost three children yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in really traumatic circumstances yeah and um, so as well as the ptsd you've, you've got the grief and and you know as you say i think there are different there are different mental health interventions and different people go through different um journeys both in terms of grief but also mental health and different things were appropriate yeah, at different times you can't just like shove you no. into this thing and say this is you're going to be cancelled now this is what you're going to have and this yeah. is going to work for you because that you know may not have been the right thing for you at that time maybe a few months down the line it might have worked but not yeah, right not then. then so that was well that yeah I mean that was the counselling experience and then the drugs which I refused and then I was then referred to a GP counsellor, told I could have six weeks um, 
counselling with a GP counsellor and I met him and he was the loveliest guy in the world, absolutely lovely. But his words to me by the second time and a handful of leaflets, his words to me were, I'm really sorry, but you know, you have genuine problems and I feel a bit like a chocolate teapot working with you. Now, the problem is when you already feel like a failure and a, and yeah. a freak, which is yeah. how I, I perceived myself, somebody in who you, you hope you can look up to to support you, telling you they feel like a chocolate teapot, is a little bit like... It's not really helping you, is not, it? Not really, no. And then I after that, things got worse and I went to see... I was referred to a psychiatric nurse through my mum's GP. And a um, young guy, again, very pleasant, went into his office with his pictures of babies on the desk. And um, he sat there with his head in his hands after I told him and said, I'm really sorry, but I'm out of my depth with you. So, oh um, so I think we need to refer you on or you could go down the route of getting your own um, kind of private counselling. So how on earth, <laughs> how on earth am I going to afford that? Um, I did actually have my brother paid for a session with me with a private counsellor, but again, very generic and, you know, lighting candles for me wasn't going to help particularly. No. So, And had, had this guy, had he like looked at your file? Did he know your background before you yeah. went in? Yeah, he, he knew a little bit about it. I mean, it was through my mum's GP, so they didn't have all my notes, but okay. he knew a bit and I, I'd told him because he asked me, and yeah, it was just, I'm sorry, but I'm out of my depth. And that was psychiatric nurse. So. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How to make you feel worse. Absolutely. So it was only after, it was only after I'd lost baby three that um, I don't, I I think I had, I had to have some kind of sedation and I, I had to have mm-hmm. some form of tablets because I, I, I really wasn't coping at that stage. Um, but a nurse that I came across gave me a leaflet for Hope House Hospice, um, T. Gobbyth, which is a children's hospice in North Wales. And they have a, a hospice in Oswestry as well. And they said, you yeah, there's this, or we've also got a talking therapies. Um, so I'd, I'd phoned up the talking therapies first. And I have to laugh because I, I don't really know what else to do with it. But they said, right, we need to assess you first. Um, so they they assessed, yeah, they assessed me over the phone, told me I was too severe for them and no signposting at all. So luckily I had the other leaflet. So this was my last chance, really, because where else was I going to go? And, you know, I phoned at Pope House and the lady who answered the phone became my counsellor. They saw me within days. Um, and what a difference. What? What an amazing service and what an amazing lady. I mean, they, they were dealing with, um, you know, the deaths of children from stillbirth through to um, 25. Um, their counselling was ongoing. So you, you had them as long as you needed them. And, you know, her first words to me were, I'll walk by your side through this until you don't need me any longer. And that, that makes me fill up now because to hear that, you know, mm-hmm. when everybody else has either walked away, can't cope with you, or it's it's like somebody has just turned the light on for you. Um, and I had three years on and off counselling. And this included not only talking, but I wrote a diary for Sam while I was pregnant that was intended for Sam to read. And it was written up to... Mm-hmm. 20 week scan I couldn't write it after that but and Jane my counsellor we talked through it she read through it she cried with me she laughed with me we she looked at everything I by this time my phobia of babies was so bad I couldn't go to the supermarket or walk down the road so Jane came shopping with me she she did she desensitized she did lots of work very person-centered and she wasn't textbook by any stretch she's amazing she's now their lead counsellor um but she would come she said right we'll start off in the car park of the supermarket and that's where we started we went to the cafe and we sat there and after after 
probably about five, six months, we, we, we were able to go down the baby aisle and she did this by my side. Um, if it hadn't have been for her and that service, I probably wouldn't be here now. Um, she saw me through losing another two babies um, because two years after the very traumatic loss I had, um, I, yeah, I, I fell pregnant naturally again and lost that baby at 10 weeks um, and then went on to have another early loss. Um, and we also had failed egg donation treatment um, in the Czech Republic in that time as well. So, yeah, amazing service, amazing lady. And that's a charity, I think. Is it a charity? charity. Yeah, Hope House Hospice are a charity and they're just incredible. It sounds like you went through the worst possible route Mm -hmm. to get there, but Mm -hmm. you ended up in completely the right place. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was so lucky in the end. I was so lucky. And again, I have to say lucky because I, you've got to take some positives away from this. Um, and it was actually Jane that said to me, because she knew I wrote and she'd read some of my children's stuff. And it was Jane who'd said to me, it would be amazing if one day as a writer, you could put your journey on paper with with Sam or, or however far you want to go. Because it would be an amazing, it would be amazing for other parents, um, and maybe help healthcare professionals, and to see an honest journey from start to finish. So this is Jane's fault. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get onto that in a yep, little minute. Yep, but yep. I want to ask you. I guess what is a really it's a difficult question for me to ask, and probably an even more difficult one for you to answer. But at what You've had five losses in, I think, seven years. Eight years. At yeah. what point did you think, "This is it. I can't do this anymore. This, this, this is the end of the road." The egg donation treatment, when that that failed, um, oh, where where else where else do you go? Um, you know, and and by that point, my age age wise, I was at the end of the line financially. I was absolutely broke. Um, emotionally I was don't think there are any words for it really you know I was supported by Hope House and I functioned and I was lucky to function Um, so there was just yeah I I never wanted to give up I never want to say goodbye and I still don't I still haven't been able to accept that I'll never be a mum that has to come at some point because I know I reached the end of the line, but I still, yeah, struggle with that very badly. Thank you. Sorry, I'm totally... No, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no. Thank you for being so honest. And I think one of the reasons that I really wanted to speak to you, so I'm I'm fairly new to the baby loss community still, but I feel like even within such an, what is generally now, I feel quite an open accepting community. There are still subjects that people don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. And one of those is is reaching the end of the road. And and I think it's maybe because every, you know, every brief parent, every parent who goes through losing a child hopes. Mm-hmm. against all hope you yeah. know that one day they will be able to bring home a living child yeah and as you as you say reaching reaching the stage where you know that's not going to be the case for you must feel like such an isolating experience and and I know you're not the only person who has had that experience so I do hope that mm. if people are listening to this who've had that experience they can kind of relate relate to that a bit more did you manage to find, have you ever managed to find a community or other people in a similar situation or have you had to manage this I, alone? I'm not a great group person because I don't have a huge mm. amount of confidence, self-confidence, which people don't believe because I'm a lecturer and I'm a writer and I can communicate, but actually take all those layers off and I'm I'm not a particularly confident person. Um, so a group thing and that was probably part of the issue in the first place trying to get help was because mm-hmm. I needed the one-to-one support with it um, I haven't uh, most of most of the things that I've seen in terms of social media and community tend to be manned by people who have been able to go on to have children 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that and it, it doesn't make That's it any easier. Yeah, it is mm-hmm. a huge barrier yeah. because you still like I still in my own way feel like a freak. Not not to the same extent that it damages me anymore, but that I'm on the outside of the window looking in. Um mm-hmm. You know, I've I've had five pregnancies. I've had pregnancies. I've taken maybe three pregnancy. You know, just like other mums, but I just couldn't get there. I couldn't. I couldn't keep my babies alive. And not that there was anything I could do. But and then I, yeah. So you come out the end, and you're still a mum. You're you're a mum without a baby. And because I always strongly believe that you're the minute you find out you're pregnant, you're a mum. You, you, everything in your life changes. So to come away from that, losing one baby, two babies, three, four, five babies, and then have to walk away from the whole thing is, I that is probably the aspect I, I still haven't properly come to terms with. And no, there's very little support for that. And it's amazing what people say to you. <laughs> um, you know, everything from well you know babies aren't that important anyway and you know you focus on your career and go and get yourself a hobby and I've I've said, had this said to me by people quite close to me um I not only have you grieved every baby you've lost but you then have to try and grieve your motherhood and the, the, there is nothing out there for that there, there is nothing and I think people don't, there's a lot of people don't actually take that seriously. I think when you say to them, you know, that, well, I don't generally say it because there's not many people who would understand it, but that's a huge hole to grieve. I've got five holes plus my own identity. Um, yeah, it's like five holes within a great big mass. void. Yeah huge inside you I mean I, mm-hmm. I said on Twitter not long ago you know I, I actually feel more whole than human you know at, at times and and I do there's an amazing sculpture and I can't remember the name of it um if I can find it I might put a link in the show notes and it's I don't I, I'm not sure if it's specifically baby loss grief but it's great it's a grief sculpture and it's of a person hunched over I don't know if you've seen it and it's a metal sculpture and the whole of their body is a whole yeah like yeah. literally, and it just and that kind of depicts that, exactly, that what, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that yeah. is what it is. So it's yeah. The, I, there's even the, the, people struggle to talk about baby loss, but the, and there's very little support. There, the, it is improving. It is improving, but I think because it is such a buried taboo subject, there's very little support. But when you get to the end of the line. There's even less support. There's nothing at all, and that and that is a horrendous thing to face. And people don't want to think about it. You, know, if you already have a family, why would you want to think about losing babies or or having no children at all? People, you know, mums struggle. Mums and dads struggle with their kids leaving home to go to university. Imagine what it's like if all your children die and you've got nothing and nobody. Uh, you know, but yet there is that is not seen. I don't think as as a problem. It is a problem. Mm-hmm. It is a problem. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's come on to talk about writing then, because you're a writer. I'm also a writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk great. about. So you've written a play, Dancing yes. in the Wings. I have. This is for Sam and based on a story. So, yeah. why did you decide to embark on this project, and when did you feel? I guess, able to do it? Well, as I, I mentioned before, Jane, my counsellor, it, it had been a suggestion of, of hers um, and something that at the time I turned down point blank and said, I won't be able to do that. That That isn't anything I'll be able to do. You know, I couldn't get past Sam's 20-week diary, you know, let alone. I could write children's books because that was almost like skipping on a little further. But writing a play based on my experience was something I was never going to do. Um, but about 18 months ago, I, I'd almost become reclusive. Um, other than going to work where I could put a mask on, um, outside of work, I just put myself in four walls or spent time with my ponies or my dogs and stayed fairly isolated. 
And I can't remember. And I don't even know the point at which I made a decision. I think it was probably as my relationship was breaking down. Um, I decided that I had to do something. And I'd gone back to see Jane again. And because it was kind of on and off in the end when I saw her. And she, she said, you, we, the pro- biggest problem you have right now is your isolation. So let's just set a target. Let's just do something. And I grew up in theatre. Um, so I started my first paid job, was backstage at Theatre Cluid in Mould, which is where where my play is going to be launching from. And um, it was an environment I'd always felt safe in because, again, it's something you can put a mask on with. So I decided that my first step out was going to be to theatre. So there was a, a friend of my dad who'd come back to the area and he'd just joined a theatre group and I linked up with him somehow I can't remember how but he said why don't you just come along for a meeting why don't you he didn't know what had happened to me um so I went along and they were writing a play at the time and I I don't god knows I I don't know how I got roped into it but I ended up being offered a part in this play which is a huge step from somebody with PTSD, anxiety, depression, who'd been reclusive for so long. But I guess I thought, well, I'm putting a mask on for this too. You know, let's, and I'm not an actor by any stretch. I am a writer, not an actor. I should be behind the stage, not on the stage. And what made it worse was that I actually, as part of this, I had to play a nurse who fell in love with a soldier and had to kiss this man on stage. Um, so I'd, I'd gone from one extreme to the other. But the key to all this was that the group were really lovely. And I hadn't told them, hadn't told them what I'd been through. The man that I had to act opposite with was amazing. He's a professional actor um, and has become a really good friend. And it's because of his trust and belief in me, because as a professional actor, it, it doesn't matter to him. He's he's not bothered, you know. But to me, it was like trying to trust somebody. It took me until dress rehearsal to actually kiss him. We'd gone through four months, of, <laughs> four months rehearsals, and it's like point. I can't, I can't do this. I'll give you a hug, but I can't do this. Um, at some point, you're gonna have to do point, it. I've got to do this. So it got to dress rehearsal. Um, anyway he was really lovely and it was almost like the trust he had in me and we developed a really good friendship and he um yeah what an amazing guy he he also works for the police as well um and after our first performance I actually messaged him I didn't tell him face to face I messaged him and explained to him why it meant so much to me the way he treated me the way I'd been able to do this and how much I'd actually achieved by doing this. And I told him what I'd been through. And from that moment, he, he almost, he almost became a bit of a mentor and a guide to me. Um, and he helped me from, I, I told him what Jane had suggested about writing. And I said, if I, if I ever did this, I'd have to do it as a play. I said, come on then, let's do it. Um, God. Sigh, I'll, yeah. I'll never forgive you for this. But um, <laughs> accountability, yeah. So he he was amazing, and most of our relationship was via messenger. Once we finished the play, he stood by me through the whole thing from the first word I wrote. He supported me emotionally, and if I took a dip, because it was horrendous writing that and having to dig up everything was horrendous. Obviously, it wasn't me it was another couple and you know that you have to put changes in this and you have to make it theatrically you know appealing um so he stood by me from the first words I wrote and every time I went down he said no come on we're we're okay we can do this um and he'd been through similar family experiences himself which I hadn't known till later on um but I wrote it and then I approached um, theatre Cluid and I said I'm doing this <laughs> um, can you help me wow. um, so I, I, it only took me about eight weeks to write the first draft um, of this play but then I, I had it took it to a professional um, writer and she helped me edit it and then a team of professional actors helped me edit it and it, it was rewritten five times 
before we got to the point Which is quite normal yeah, I imagine I mean I, mean, I, yeah. I write books yeah, yeah. not screenplays yeah. but you know I'm on about draft 20 yeah. or something of the yeah. current <laughs> the current books so, well this yeah. is it. I mean I had a certain timeline to go by to fit in with booking theatres but yeah we got through five drafts and Sai stayed with me all the way through this and the hope had been that he'd take on the male lead um unfortunately he was involved with another professional tour so um, when it came to kind of auditions he couldn't do it but um yeah the, <clears throat> we've since when we when I got it finished I approached Betsy Cabal at the health board and said which was very brave but um I approached their chair and I said look I've done this and I've done it because I want to raise awareness and understanding and support and I've been very honest this is a very raw play um I've been honest in in all of it um and he responded to me within three days and he sent consultants and bereavement midwives and midwives to a launch forum that I did for the play. And I had a launch forum because I was really worried about any actors taking on roles within the play. I wanted to make sure that they knew what they were taking on. And again, Sai did all the read through for me when, when we did the forum. Um, and just to make sure that actors were aware how challenging it was going to be emotionally. So we're now at a stage that was back in April. Um, in September, um, we auditioned and we had a we took on a cast and they started rehearsing uh, just before Christmas. So it's it's very exciting. I, w- I went back. I, I actually started a PhD in September. Um, this is my way of trying to find a life that I could accept without being a mum. I went back to a research stuff that I used to do many, many years ago before all of this happened. Um, and I was offered a PhD, which is amazing, really, at my age. But um, so I've been up in Aberdeen since September while they're rehearsing back in North Wales. And I've hold my heart in my hands. Mm. <laughs> I went which if anyone if anyone is listening to this and doesn't live in the UK or isn't aware of UK that geography that yeah. is that's a long way apart that's, I mean not by like American state distances but that that's a long drive it's an eight hour drive it's 450 miles um and when I have to take my two dogs up and down with me each time it's it's a very long drive but yeah so I I kind of I struggled with the auditions because it's very hard to let go of something so personal um, the poor director, she had a nightmare with me. But um, I, I, at that point, I stepped back and I said, right, it's yours. It, it's yours to do with, and I trust it into your hands. And I went back to see that must, that must have been really hard to really do. Hard. Because, really um, hard. and I think, again, as as a creative, I... I can appreciate how close you can get. And, you know, we we always say, like authors, we say with books, you know, you sort of, or, or perhaps you write the first draft for you and then you write the second draft for, for your reader and by the time it's been through your editor and stuff, it's, yeah. you have to distance yourself from that. But how you distance yourself from something which is so much of a part of you and, you know, it's, it's so entwined with all these emotions and things which you've gone through over over the few years, I don't I don't know how you managed to do that I, well I didn't do it very well <laughs> I have to say I didn't. um it, it was incredibly it was incredibly hard I think the hardest thing was trying to um trying to find the two male two two lead acts so you know finding a female and male lead and I'd already had it in my head that Sai was going to take male lead so I'd been comfortable with that so when that didn't happen that that really threw me through the floor but I'd, I'd identified a lady, amazing lady. I mean, we did audition. There were a number of people who auditioned for Rachel's role. Um, the lady I'd already met some months before she'd done the read-through with Sai back at the forum. Um, and just amazing. I knew when I first met her from the instant I met her, that, that was the lady I wanted to play female lead. But it wasn't my decision. <laughs> So it was incredibly hard when it came to auditions. Luckily, Lisa got the role. Um, so Lisa is playing Rachel, and that's amazing. So I, yeah, I went back to see an early or an early rehearsal before Christmas, and I sat and I cried my way through rehearsals. And they're doing such an incredible job. I've never seen anything so fantastic at such an early stage. So yeah, I cried my way through it, but they're doing great. So yeah. It's coming on really well. 
Fantastic. Well, we are about out of time, yep. I'm afraid. No, Thank you I'm... so much for sharing your story. As I said before, I'm I'm so grateful that you've been brave enough to come on this oh, podcast because no, it, it is an amazing story. And I'm sure there are other women who out there who can relate to your experience. That's great. And um, just before we close, yep. can you let people know where they can find out more about you and more importantly, Dancing in the Wings and when it launches and Ab- all that stuff? Absolutely. So my, I suppose my main, um, my main outlet at the moment is Twitter. So um, you will find me on at Philippa Writer and I'll, I'll, give you I think you've got all the information yeah, for this I'll put the details in the um if people want to contact me they, they they're more than welcome to message me or um you know I can I I can give you an email address that that people can have I'm more than happy for people to contact me with regards to dancing in the wings um that starts its first its opening night at theatre Cluid in mold on the 27th of February and it runs three nights in Theatre Cluid and you can get tickets on their website um, mm-hmm. and then it goes over to Wrexham and a little theatre called T-Paub and I'll give you all the information for this and that's the following weekend um, runs Friday and Saturday night it then goes over to Carnarvon to, to North West Wales for one night and I can't remember the exact date for that um, but again, they run one weekend after the other. But the final, um, the final night, and this was the night I'd really hoped for, will be in Chester. The, the, it's doing two nights at the Forum Theatre in Chester um, on the 21st and 22nd of March. The final night is the night before Mother's Day, and that was intentional. Um, so that's that's where we end at, at this stage. Um, but yeah that's and and do more than welcome to come and see it and I it's not particularly aimed at bereaved parents although you know because you already know the story but you know if you want to feel less lonely but I would love for healthcare professionals to come and general public and just anybody really it sounds it sounds like an amazing play, an amazing performance, and best of luck with it. Thank and I you hope, so I much. Hope it goes really well. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again. ever so much. Thanks very much, Philippa. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.